The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and welcome to a special episode of Exploring Different Brains. In this second year in review episode, we are going to hear from change makers in medicine, education, therapy, and more. Let's start with hearing about making healthcare more inclusive. Here is Boston University School of Medicine's Dr. Angelique Harris. In your experience, what would you say is the biggest problem, the biggest roadblock to inclusion and diversity? Stigma. I think is the biggest, it's somebody, this strange thing. So Irving Goffman, who's a sociologist, um, I wrote this book called Stigma Notes on the Management of Spoiled Identity. And it was like the book on stigma it came out in the, um, I think 69. Um, but anyhow, one of the things he talked about was that we are all being held up to this person that doesn't exist. This like, um, Quite often, um, and even Audre Lorde even and talked about this as well as a uh, black feminist um, theorist, where we're held up to this like a white, straight, cisgender guy who's tall but not too tall, muscular but not too muscular, college educated but not too smart. Basically, he's Christian. He's, I mean, like it's so specific that this person doesn't exist. Um, Just you know, like statistically, or, statistically, there is no average. There's no, no. average thing. <laughs> I'm sorry exactly. to interrupt. You, but yeah. No, no, no. But that's the point. Exactly. Yeah. Is that yeah. so we're holding up so we all so so many people in society, our society are holding everybody up to this weird standard that doesn't really exist. And so as a result, everybody in some way, shape, or form is stigmatized or feels some form of like um some people are privileged in some ways, some people are oppressed in other ways, but we all feel stigmatized in some way, shape, or form, no matter how privileged we think we are. Dr. Peter Jensen. Now, a lot of what I'm doing now, so I've devoted my last 10 to 15 years on retraining doctors and therapists, teachers and others. And so I don't directly, I, I've pretty much all along my career, I've still been treating children and families, but now I'm devoting 100% time to trying to change doctors. So it's a primary care. He or she says 10,000 people kids, adults, in their career. 20% of those, that's 2,000, are going to have issues that that doctor or therapist, if they're armed with the right tools, can change their lives. So I'm trying to leverage the fact that if I change one, that one can change 2,000. So now the biggest obstacle is getting people on board to say, all right, I am willing to change old habits, the way I learned 30 years ago, what I always have believed, and my preconceptions about neurodiverse brains. You know, it's bad parents, it's this, it's that. And so, so that's the biggest obstacle. Now, we are having great success getting doctors in, but we've trained 5,000 doctors. Wow. In- in a six-month-long change program. It's not just a workshop. It's six months of mentoring. And I notice on your website, you talk about mentoring, the importance of mentoring. So we mentor doctors and therapists 
nurses, whomever, for six months before we're ready to launch them uh, to Sarah. And then they can always come back to us. But it's a six-month change process. And what we're changing is the heads, hearts, preconceptions, uh, myths, and misunderstandings that those healthcare providers might have been harboring for 20 years. So that's a big challenge. And we need, we've done 5,000, but there's 60,000 doctors to go. Lauren Clark, what is one thing you wish that all medical students knew? I wish all medical students just met and had the opportunity to talk to a person who has an intellectual disability or autism or is neurodivergent. We actually just did a study at Stanford and there was a large portion of students that said that they had never even talked with a person with an intellectual disability before in their lives. And I think, you know, in medical school, everything is a pathology. Everything is something wrong that we study and we learn how to fix, but that's not the case with, with this population, right? And so I just wish every medical student went to, you know, a special Olympics track meet or had coffee with someone and just sat down and talked with them and began to see people as people and not as something, you know, scary or, or something wrong. Um, and I, I really hope we'll get there one day. <laughs> now let's hear how we can make education more inclusive, starting with Beacon College's Dr. George and Oksana Haggerty. Students show up without a lot of confidence in the educational system and the, in the educational system's ability to deliver on the promises that are made. And so part of what is very important at this institution is that we keep our promises. And one of the promises that we have is we want our students to have first. So coming to Beacon, it's not a learning disability college. It's a college where we specialize in and are totally devoted to students who have learning disabilities, ADHD, uh, autistic spectrum disorder. We are strictly devoted to instruction and the wraparound services necessary for them to have a successful collegiate career and then go on to what we call the abundant life. My purpose and all learning specialists their purpose is really to help the students be productive participants of the learning process that is happening in the classroom, which is happening also during the job interviews, internships, everything that other students may enjoy. enjoy. So we want our students also be able to do it. And there are ways, and our faculty are doing a lot, evidence-based, best practices, education, learning specialists are doing a lot, teaching students how to attend class, how to participate in class, how to do the work. But together, we're creating a perfect college environment in which students feel that they are college students. Dr. Joseph Lento. Get to know your students. Get them to trust you. They'll, you know, kids have a way of knowing who's real and who's not. It's as simple as that. You cannot lie to them. If they'll know in a second if you know what you're talking about or not. Develop relationships with them. Let them know you care about them more than the classwork itself. I'm more concerned with how a student feels. Because, you know, you go back to all the developmental psychologists, Maslow and Herzberg and all these people. They talk about all these things. Well, we need to do it. We need to do it. And we need to do it from administration 
to the faculty, which, again, at Maria Regina High School, they are doing a beautiful job of taking care of their faculty um, emotionally and supportive. It's wonderful. And we need to continue to do it with the students, which they're doing a beautiful job also. So I'd like to take that model and try and get more people to do it. That's the key. Not everyone is going to be everything we want them to be. If you have that approach, you shouldn't be in the classroom. It's We want them to be what they need to be. Let's explore inclusion in therapy, starting with Dr. Jenny Trocchio. Jen, what is one thing that you think everyone should know about building connections with neurodivergent loved ones? Building connections with neurodivergent loved ones is so much easier than so many people think. People think it has to be hard or structured, but really I think if you take a moment and watch and see what an individual is interested in, and join them in it. I think that's really the best place to start. You don't have to overthink it. You don't have to buy things. Just watch, wait, and join. Dr. Janice Ryan. I had a little boy that I saw who was seven. He had sensory sensitivity, sensory avoidance, and he was also a sensory seeker. So what I do in the environment is I help him to feel better about trying new things. He had anxiety. He was seven and was already on anxiety medicines. And so when I take him in there, what I would do would set up the environment so that he could feel good in that environment. He could feel engaged enough, but not overly engaged, not overly excited or anxious, relaxed in that just right space. And then I could use um, human systems dynamics models to help teach him to do hard things like how to tell his grandmother he doesn't like to be hugged. I mean, there are a lot of things when you have sensory sensitivity that you have to help kids learn how to do so they can be advocates for themselves. And that is a really important part of this is helping them know what kind of environment feels good, what kind of environment feels bad helping the family know, and so they can advocate and in the future. Samantha Salver. Being a neurodivergent is such, it's not one type of person. It's an infinite amount of types of people. And although most of them probably have some sort of social, um, social communication struggle, where that's what we really focus on uh, to help them, you know, a lot of these guys are very academically inclined or have really niche skills that they would prosper in a community setting with the right social skills or the right um, accommodations that not everyone knows that you can ask for or that it's okay to ask for those things. So, yeah, so it's targeting what my lessons are and how I'm delivering them. Um, I have nonverbal students and everyone's an adult. So nonverbal to, um, to people who use social communication devices. And I have some homebound students that, you know, we bring volunteerism to them. We bring stuff to their home so they can help package things for a food pantry, for a clothing pantry. Um, 
we're just trying to give them access to things that maybe no one gave them access to before. Now let's hear about inclusive fitness with David Geslack. So I think when teaching exercise to those on the spectrum, uh, one routine is a critical thing that we talk about. But I think what I also remind professionals, parents, uh, or yeah, maybe new exercise professionals or therapists coming into it, just because you may learn or hear something that I've said or, or, or whatnot in regards to creating a structured routine, don't go and change that for the individual that you're working with. Meaning, if you if you know it, how an individual is, how they're successful, whether it's in speech, OT, ABA, whatever that structure and protocol is, use that because we know they're having success with other professionals. So use understand that structure, follow that same structure now with the exercises in place or the practices, right? Know the reinforcements, but don't reinvent the wheel just because you may have read something or heard something from us today or whatnot, find that structure that is that individual successful and continue with that. Because what I also like to remind people when you're in, introducing your child, yourselves or your students or your clients to exercise, it can be quite challenging, right? And, and how many programs all well intended start to promote it as a have your kid join our fun exercise class. Well, guess what? Exercise isn't fun for most people. If it was, we wouldn't have the obesity epidemic that we do. So, but if you're going to transition your student, your client or your child children to exercise, use the structure that you know that they're successful speech, OT, social skills group, now use that same structure and exercise. Let's hear about inclusion in the justice system from Tom Oliver. What's the main thing, the main thing that people don't realize related to autism and the justice system? I don't think people understand that the sentencing rationales um, ought not apply in the same way as they do to a neurotypical person. And by that, I mean um, general deterrence and I mean specific deterrence. And, and general deterrence is where you're deterring other people from committing like offences. And how that applies to an autistic person is it, it doesn't because you're, it's like saying, um, you know, I'm going to, to punish an, this autistic person so that other people don't commit this same offence. But the reality is... Um, the, this autistic client that we have um, doesn't it doesn't have autism like or the, the the general public doesn't have autism and so um, they don't need to be deterred in the same way as this person and likewise specific deterrence doesn't apply because um, specific deterrence being deterring the person that you're punishing from committing the offence again because and that this is the, the more important one because uh, the autistic person. Um, is committing this offence, as we found uh, through these studies, through our findings, uh, as, for the most part, because of their autistic characteristics, which they're born with. And so by imprisoning these people, all we're doing is kicking the can down the road when they're released again, because um, their autistic characteristics are who they are. You can't take them away from them. You can't dissociate their autistic characteristics from themselves. Um, they 
end up doing the same thing. They commit the same offences in the same way. And so the only way to, um, to solve this issue, if you like, is through tailored suitable therapy. And let's end with a few words on inclusive employment from Jilika Kumar. What is one thing you would like all employers to know about neurodivergent talent? I would say something that's been really important that we've noticed, especially in, you know, whether it's Fortune 500 companies or small businesses, is to really be kind, open-minded, empathetic, understanding that there are, you know, strengths that lie within that individual, whether, you know, might not appear from what meets the eye. And especially for someone, you know, like my brother and uncovering his strengths, after 27 years of knowing him, I realized I didn't really know him because I didn't have the translation layer, the, the tool that would enable me to communicate and connect with him. And all along, I kept an open mind, you know, and wondered what what if he really is, you know, cognitively way more capable than I could have imagined. And, and I think that goes true for, you know, every neurodivergent individual that I've met who has their own you know, unique talents and strengths um, that the world really needs to tap into because it is the type of different thinking that will evolve humanity and that will solve all of the greatest challenges of our day. Um, and it's just time for workforces to open their doors. <laughs> um, and, and the way we can start is by being open-minded and compassionate and caring and you know, changing our ways in order to accommodate and you know, include the individual rather than expecting the individual to change you know, we change um, as a society. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org.